0: Um, with this, what we are looking at today is um, Judaism and Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament um, and really going to just, I think there's a lot of things that perhaps Christians take for granted about the whole link there Um, and uh, I think perhaps for some people that wouldn't describe themselves as Christians, they often wonder how do these things fit together? And I think to be honest, rightly so. Um, Here's a question for you. What use does a 21st century non-Jew have with an ancient Jewish history book. The Old Testament is an ancient Jewish history book. It's all about the Jews. It's all about the Israelites. What use does a 21st century Gentile, which I'm assuming most, if not all of us are, what use do we have with it? A first appearance is actually quite bizarre that a Christian would have the Old Testament as part of their Bible. Just to explain, in case you're not familiar with the Bible, it's really 66 books, 39 of them are Old Testament Testament books, 27 New Testament. The Old Testament was the stuff that was written before Jesus came. And the last book there in the Old Testament is Malachi. That was written about 400 years before Jesus came. And then the first book of the the New Testament is Matthew, and and you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel accounts. And you get really the account of Jesus Christ and the early church. And so really you've got 66 books, yeah, but also you've really got two big books, and the Christians have brought them together and said, yeah, we'll have that, and we'll have that. But it's a bit bizarre on the surface. You think, why? Why even give time to a, a book, the Old Testament, that another religion has as their scriptures? Or, if we're going to do that, why don't we get the in, and why don't we get the Hindu script, why don't we just get the whole thing together? Why have just these two? It looks like syncretism, which is the joining together of two beliefs. Which, interestingly, the God of the Jews forbids. <laughs> That's what it looks like. So I want to ask that question. Also, what is it with Christians? Because it, even a lot of the core commands in the Old Testament, they don't even pretend to practice. Circumcision, animal offerings, um, abstaining from certain foods, they don't even pretend to practice it. Why? So how can we say, well, this is our, this is our scripture? Well, well, go and sacrifice some grain in the tabernacle. Then. Oh, well, is, how does it work? Where's the link? If there's not one, then it's just bizarre. Um, So the question is, what or who makes these two books one? So the way we're going to look at this is that we're going to um, get into Judaism for about ten minutes. Some of you may have never really thought through Judaism. You need to think it through very, very carefully if you're going to understand Christianity. In fact, if you don't understand Judaism, you don't understand Christianity even if you're a Christian. You don't really get your own history, and um, what Christianity is about. It's ever so important. So hopefully I've whetted your appetite and you're thinking, I want to learn about Judaism. Good. You need to. So we're going to look at the uniqueness of Judaism, and then the essence of it, what it's about, and then we're going to go on from there to look at how the old and the new come together. Are you up for that? The big deal with Judaism in its time when it first came about was that it was monotheistic. It worshipped one God. That was absolutely unique. There was no Christianity, there was no Islam. And so what did everyone else do? Well, everyone worshipped something. Atheism did not exist, pretty much. Everyone worshipped something, but they would worship a plethora of gods. They'd worship the gods of the heavens, the stars, the astral spirits. They'd worship the gods of the underworld. They'd worship the gods of fertility, the gods of war, um, the god of, god of, god of, war, god of various um, locations and geographies, the gods of the hills, the gods of the towns. And that was really how people lived. They would have a multiplicity of gods. They were polytheistic. And then suddenly you get these Jews, these Hebrews, who they worship one God. That was absolutely unique. Not only so, but the claims they made about this God were just almost absurd. Because even if someone in those days, someone else that wasn't a Jew, would worship one God, here's how they would do it. They would say, I'm a soldier, so I worship the God of war. But they wouldn't think for one minute that that was the only God. They just said, "No, this is, this is the one I worship because of what I do, or I worship this God because I live here, and this God is all, all about this kind of territory here." But they wouldn't think that was the only that it was the only God. The Jews come along, said, "There's only one God. There's only one Creator, completely sovereign, completely set apart from all of creation. He created the heavens and the earth. You name it, He's in charge of it." He's not rivaling against lots of other gods and spirits. He's utterly set apart, completely unique. That was unheard of. You need to understand the uniqueness of that to appreciate Judaism, pre-Christian Judaism. The way these Jews worshipped their God was completely unique. Here's some examples. No imagery. No images allowed in worship. In those days, people loved their images of worship. They would, um, so things like, uh, the the phallic symbol was a a popular one, Um, to worship the god of fertility, because symbolising new life and that kind of thing. It was a popular thing, they would use a lot of that in worship. Or, if their god was particularly known for his strength, they might fashion a bull or an ox, and that would represent their god. Or it would be a person, an image of a human, but certain things about it would speak of the attributes of this so-called God. That's how people worshipped. They wanted something in front of their eyes, and then they could bow down and worship before it. The, The God of the Jews absolutely prohibited any imagery in worship. Why? first reason was this, that he was holy. There's three reasons. Number one, he's holy. And so this means that if you take anything from the created order and say this represents God you're reducing him to the created. You say, well, God's strong, so let's have an ox. You say, no, because he's much stronger than an ox. God's really brainy. Let's have a man with a huge head. No. (laughs) That will not help us understand the omniscience of God. Do you understand what I mean? It was totally, it was, no, it doesn't work. And, And God was very strong on this. Do not Use any images because whatever you use, whatever you can gather or glean, it will be part of the created order. I am not part of the created order. I am the creator. No one made me. Second reason is holy, holy, which means he's really holy. Third reason is holy, holy, holy. It's a unique phrase in the Bible. The, 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 um, Hebrews wouldn't say really or very, they would just use the same word again. So for something to be thrice holy was like man. This, you've really got to take this seriously. Do not, whatever you do, reduce the worship of this God to the worship of other gods. This one is altogether different. Not only this sexual purity, this God was very keen on the, the enjoyment of sex within marriage what he made it for within the covenant relationship so it would reflect something of the intimacy of his covenant relationship with his people exclusive marriage just between two people um, speaking of prophesying pointing to the relationship of him and his people and exclusiveness and that faithfulness other gods in those days would often encourage copulation as part of their worship it was was believed that it would arouse the gods and it would stir them to, to do certain things so people would often do that as part of their worship have intercourse totally different exclusivism versus pluralism the God of the Hebrew said I am your God and only me if you can have any other gods forget it the whole mentality at that time was well, this will work for us we'll manipulate this spirit to do this for us and then we'll get in touch with this that's how people thought the God of the Hebrew says absolutely not if you're going to worship me you worship only me if you worship me in something else you stop worshipping me totally different in so many ways so Judaism was unique. It was not just part of the religious plethora of the day. It claimed absolute superiority. And the aim was this. The aim was that as the Jews worshipped God in this way, that they would create a counterculture on earth. And the other nations would really look to it and say, this is amazing. Not only is another one, the God, the God of the Jews loved and really had special care for the poor and the vulnerable and the widow and would have special laws. They'd say, if you're harvesting your field, don't go to the edges when you harvest it. Kind of cut, cut the corners... So that you leave the corners and the edges for the stranger among you, the poor, the vulnerable. This stuff was revolutionary. No one lived like this. And so the idea was that as they worshiped God, the nations would look in and say, This is amazing. We want to worship this God. You see, they were supposed to be a light to the nations, they were supposed to be a source to which other nations were converted to the worship of the true God. This was God's plan for them, this was God's aim for them. Secondly, Judaism was unique. Firstly, secondly, it was a religion of hope. It was looking forward to something. It was looking forward to a golden age where all oppression and um, sin and darkness would be done away with, an age that would be ushered in by a mysterious messianic figure, a kingly figure, a deliverer, a rescuer. The whole of Judaism was pointing towards it. Their prophets prophesied about this figure that would come. We'll look at some of those things later. The laws and even the offerings were all pointing towards this one figure that would come and that would bring this current system of religion to its fulfilment and usher in a new age. That's what it was about. It was a religion of hope. They were waiting for someone, and interestingly still are, waiting for the Messiah. What I'm going to do, the best way to help you to understand how that, what I've just explained to you, fits in with the New Testament, is we're going to do a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament, and I'm going to look at scriptures in the Old Testament, and, look, and then look at how they were fulfilled in the New Testament. Are you up for that? Okay, are you awake? Are you, you've got to use your brains, okay? Your heart's going to get hit, trust me. Your heart will be hit, but you've got to engage, you've got to use your brain, okay? So please be absolutely engaged. Okay, we in the first book of the Torah, Genesis the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures. We read that as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, disobeyed God and came under judgment for their disobedience, possibly the darkest point in human history, God promises that one will come, that will bring redemption and salvation. The Lord is speaking to the serpent, who in this story represents Satan. This is what he says. First slide, please, Ed. God speaking to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, serpent and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what's being promised there is, we'll keep up for the moment, what's being promised there is that one will come born of a woman, a woman's offspring, who will mortally wound the serpent, will fatally wound Satan, crushing his head, but whilst doing so, will himself be injured, his heel will be bruised, but not in a way that will be fatal. Next slide. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's demonic powers, the offspring of the serpent, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. This is the fulfilment. The first quote was Old Testament, this is New Testament. Next slide. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The New Testament claims that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was the fulfilment of the Genesis 3 prophecy. What about the virgin birth? Ridiculous idea, many people say. Well, let's listen to the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus of Nazareth was born. Next slide. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is 700 years before Jesus was born. Okay? The virgin will conceive. What was it going to be like? It's going to be called Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Jesus claimed to be fully man, fully God. The claims of the New Testament say that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, really, honestly, truly, and he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Absolutely. What about Jesus' birthplace? Where's this Messiah about to be? Where's he going to be born? You can't manipulate your birthplace, can you? Some people say, well, Jesus manipulated the prophecies. You can't manipulate where you're born. Listen to the prophet Micah, who was around 100 years before Jesus. Next slide. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, it's only a little town, O little town of Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. One of the titles of God in the Bible is Ancient of Days. The Messiah, who is fully man, fully God, will be born in Bethlehem. Even though it's an insignificant town in the middle of nowhere, really, that's where the ruler is going to come from. The New Testament is clear. Jesus Christ fulfills this prophecy. Or what about King David? Now, King David was around a thousand years before Jesus, and he wrote a lot of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. Now, he wrote a number of Psalms that we call Messianic Psalms. Why? Because in the Psalms, you realise, hey, he's not talking about himself here. He's talking about things that he didn't experience at all, but he's talking about them in the first person. And it's almost like he got taken up by the Holy Spirit as he's writing these Psalms, and he's experiencing what the Messiah himself and things about the Messiah will experience. Let's look at the next slide. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Christ. Now what do we see when Jesus got arrested? We see really that the peoples are plotting something. The rulers are coming together. How can we trap him? How can we trip him up? But it's all in vain because it doesn't actually work in the end. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers against the Lord and his Christ. done don't know if you know this. And Jesus arrest, You've got Pontius Pilate, Roman governor, And you've got King Herod, evil Jewish king. They were enemies. At odds with one another, wouldn't even speak to each other. What brought them together? The arrest of Christ. They sent Jesus to and fro from one another because they didn't know what to do with him. (laughs) And uh, really you see, it says, from that day on they became friends. So in plotting against the... This is written a thousand years before Jesus. In plotting against the Christ, the kings of the earth set themselves and took counsel together. Jesus completely fulfilled this. Here's one, you're going to like this one. Zechariah, he was a prophet shepherd. He was around hundreds of years before Jesus. This is what he said. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. That's important. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Stop there, we've got 30 pieces of silver, we've got the house of the Lord, we've got a potter. Okay? Now, before we go on to the next slide, you need to know that Judas betrayed Jesus for the price of 30 pieces of silver. Look what happened. Next slide. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple... So we got three pieces of silver in the house of the Lord. He departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into our treasury, since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Spooky, eh? These are the guys that are these are the guys that are they love the Old Testament, these wicked men, they loved it. But they are unwittingly, unfulfilling messianic prophecy by what they're doing. The Lord knows. This is, the Christ, is, it's all planned. God is not surprised by these things. It's incredible, isn't it? What's happening in Jesus' mind during his torture? We know. We know what was happening in Jesus' mind during his torture. How? Prophet Isaiah, 700 years before. Listen to this. Next slide. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. There he is, getting his beard pulled out, getting his back flogged with that terrible flogging that he received, and the whole time he's set his face like that. I'm going to do this, because I know, I know, the Bible says, for the joy set before him, I know God is going to come good, and we're going to see many saved as as a result of this. Just what a privilege to be letting on the mind of Christ as he's going through this. It's good to know what was in his mind because he was virtually silent during the whole of the process. But that was prophesied too. Next slide. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That was spoken about 700 years before Jesus came. Or oh, do you recognise these words? Next slide. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said those? Jesus. Not before David. In one of the most incredible Messianic Psalms, Psalm 22, it is unbelievable. David is speaking like a thousand years in advance as if he's Jesus. My God. So you say, so why did Jesus say this when he's hanging on the cross? He's saying this, I'm the Messiah. I'm fulfilling that. Listen to this. Next slide. All who see me mock me. This is Jesus on the cross. They make mouths at me. They wag, say, wag, sorry, they wag their heads. This is what they say. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So there's a mockery going on around the cross. A thousand years before the cross this was written, there's a mockery going on and people are saying apparently, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Let's go to Matthew, the account of the crucifixion. So the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. Almost word for word. This is David prophesying from the Messiah. David never went through this. He never went through this. Let's stay with Psalm 22. Let's read the next slide. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. On the cross, when you would be hanging there, the gravity would cause your arms to come out of the sockets. It's wet, melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot serve. My tongue sticks in my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands. We know his hands were nailed to the cross. I can count on my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Next slide. And when they would crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. It's staggering, isn't it? It's just staggering. It's the plan of God. God's plan of salvation. This is why Christians love the Old Testament. Because it's all talking about Jesus. But the Jews missed it. The Jews missed their Messiah and crucified him. They crucified their Messiah. And they're still waiting. And it's not surprised they're still waiting because they missed him. They'll still be waiting until they turn to Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. You can't dispute it. What about Psalm 69? Next one. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Listen to what Jesus deliberately did just before death. Next slide. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfil scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It's finished. Bowed his head, Gave up his spirit. Jesus himself directly fulfilled three hundred Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. If you can find a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled it. But what about all those offerings? What about those animal offerings? How does that work? Why don't why why don't Christians do that? We don't do that. Here's why. Next slide. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews ten verse 4. So why did the Jews do that? Here's why the Jews did that. A bit of history for you. The Jews were captive in Egypt as a whole nation. Their entire nation were slaves in Egypt centuries ago, or millennia ago. God raised up Moses to deliver them. Moses went and spoke to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, no way. So God says, fine. When he says no, there's some judgments I'm going to bring just to let him know I'm serious. There's numbers of different judgments, everything ranging from uh, infestation of frogs to locusts eating all of the um, all, all of the all of the crops, to so all kinds of things. It gets to the point where Pharaoh just hardens his heart so much, God says, right, tell the Pharaoh that unless he lets them go, I'm going to kill every firstborn in every home in Egypt. So Moses goes and gives him warning. Pharaoh says, forget it. God says to Moses, right, here's what you do. I want every one of the Israelites that are in Egypt to kill a lamb. A perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish. Take the blood from the lamb and smear it on your doorposts, on the lintel on your doors and your doorposts, so that when I go through Egypt tonight, every house where I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over, and I will not let the destroyer go in. That night, every firstborn in Egypt was killed. And the Pharaoh said, go. And they went. From that point on, the Jews celebrated the feast of the Passover every year, where they killed a lamb without blemish. And remembered that, during that time, because of the blood the judgment of God passed over them and they were spared. Do you know when Jesus was killed? The day before Passover. What's he saying? I'm the Passover lamb. If you put your trust in me and in my blood shed for you, the judgment of God will pass over you and you'll be spared. When John the Baptist, who was an extraordinary prophet, who was around the same time as Jesus, saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Next slide. There it is, John one twenty nine. That's John the Baptist speaking. The Lamb of God. He saw it. Here he is. This is the one. All of those offerings pointed towards the one offering. When the one, the Lamb, came and offered himself, if you then go about offering up lambs and goats after that, you've missed it. You've just completely missed it. He has come. He has done it. God was never satisfied by the blood of goats or bulls. When, when those offerings came up, it always reminded the father of what would happen when his son would give up his life. Now that's happened. There's no need for any of those offerings anymore. Jesus fulfills all those offerings for sin and guilt. Listen to the writer of the Hebrews talk about Judaism and then compare it to Jesus. Next slide. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, himself on the cross, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy. By his one offering on the cross, by him laying down his life, he has made perfect those who put their trust in him. He does it. This is the gospel. This is the glory of the new covenant. You mustn't miss this. Maybe there's one more question to ask. Did Jesus himself say anything about the Old Testament and his place in it? Loads. I'll leave you with a few. Matthew 5 verse 17. Next slide. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. The term law and the prophets was the term the Jews used to describe the Old Testament. I've come to fulfil them. Jesus said that that's what he was about. At the very start of his preaching activity, he arrived at a synagogue and listened to what he did. Next slide. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He, um, so the prophet Isaiah, I remember we've looked at him already, around 700 years before. And he unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me... He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is one of the key Messianic scriptures. Jesus said, I fulfilled it. Jesus made these claims about himself. Jesus was either a liar Or he was serious. He can't just be a good man. He can't just be always a good teacher. No. He was either an outright liar or he is the fulfilment of the whole of the Old Testament. He's the fulfilment of God's plan of salvation. He is the one. Or just forget about him as a deceiver, a mocker. He can't be anything in the middle. He said this about himself. Did Jesus really think he was the Messiah? Let's go to a desert road in Samaria and listen to the conversation he had with the local adulteress. Next slide. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I want to end now with one more story from a book of the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21 and show Christ in it because it's glorious. The Jews were in the wilderness following Moses around and they were sinning and moaning and grumbling and rebelling against God again and again and again. And so God judged them. And he judged them by sending fiery serpents among them to bite them and kill them. It's judgement for you. So the people realise, flip, this is crazy. These things are everywhere and we're all going to die. So they go to Moses and they say, we've sinned. What shall we do? So pray for us. So Moses goes and prays. And here's what God says. God says, I want you to make a fiery serpent out of bronze. Stick it on a pole. Hold it up high. Whoever looks at it, once they've been bitten, whoever looks at it, they'll be healed. And it was so. That's what happened. Now fast forward a few thousand years and listen to Jesus. Next slide. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here Jesus is saying that what happened in the wilderness is a picture, a pattern of the reality of what happens in him. We've all been bitten by the serpent. We're all under the judgment of God because of our sin. If you were here last week, you heard that and you couldn't have heard it any clearer. Because of our wickedness, because we do deceitful things, because we actually don't love God with all that we are, because ultimately we're self-centered creatures, because of the things we say and don't say, because of the love that we don't show and the lies, because of all these things, it's we've been bitten by the serpent, we've been infected with the poison of sin, we are on our way out, we are under the sentence of death by our nature. We are in exactly the same predicament as those Jews who were bitten by those fiery serpents. What do we do? There's one who was held up on a pole, lifted up on a pole, just like that serpent Jesus. What do we do? Look to him. Look to him. Is that Yeah, look to him. No more now you look to him and you put your trust in him. Jesus said that whoever puts their trust in him may have eternal life. See him, believe in him and live. Entrust yourself to him. He is God's salvation. I hope you've seen today. I mean, it's been a whistle-stop talk but I hope you understand. I could have gone on for hours. I could literally have gone on for hours and gone straight to the evening meeting and carried on again. There's enough in there. There's enough in there. There was so much stuff I've just had to put aside in another file for another time. There's so much. But I wanted to give you some of the most dramatic and key things so you can see and understand. Here's the application. If you are here today and you're a believer, know this. Know this. That you are not part of some kind of shabby, modern religion that just kind of threw itself together a couple of thousand years ago and is trying to... Listen. The Jews were clear that they were serving the God who created all things, the God of history. That God of history established a, a faith, if you like, that was based on one who was coming. He has come. We trust in him. This is not about taken on board some kind of religion. This is about finding your place in the very history of the cosmos. This is about finding your part in the grand narrative of history. This is what God is doing. It's not just, oh, what religion should I be a part of? No, it's not that at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. It puts everything else into the shade. No, I don't mean that in a tribalistic, triumphal way. I'm just saying, look, this, this stands up. No. No the glory of what you've been brought into oh know it know that you're part of something that's so huge you're part of the grand purposes of God if you're not a believer I would say to you what more do you need what more what more would you what more could God do what more could God do to to be faith, to show you faithfully that he is and that you need him and that he has come to me all of you what more could he do He's died for you. He's come as a man and died for you. He's fulfilled the scriptures. He's done every, Everything's been done. There's no reason on earth why you can think well, it doesn't hold together. It holds together completely. It holds together completely. I want to say to you there's a responsibility in knowing this stuff. There's a responsibility you have in knowing this stuff. Because now you know it. What are you going to do with it? What should you do with it? You should repent of your sin. You should repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. That's absolutely what you should do with it. And know the wonder of sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, reconciliation with God, new life in God, being brought out of your own little story into God's big story. And being part of his kingdom and co-laboring, co-working within for the rest of your life. That's, that's the, that is life to the full that is life to the full. We're going to gather back into worship and praise and we're also going to break bread. We, we do this, Jesus told us to do this. He said, "This, break this and uh, remember that my body was broken for you. Drink this and remember that my blood was shed for you. We we'll always come back to the cross. And uh, we're going to do that. If you're a believer, please just come and do that during this next song or two. If you're not a believer but you want to become a believer, then come and do that by way of saying, Jesus, I want to be involved with you. That's a wonderful way of becoming a Christian, of coming up and saying, Jesus, I'm all yours now. I'll take the bread, I'll drink the wine, and then come and find someone we will pray with you. And uh, I think, I don't know how we're doing for time. Mrs? Just after 12. Okay. Just before 12. Okay. I'm going to give about 10 minutes at the end for question and answer. Okay, so we'll stop around about 20 past and I'll just give an opportunity to answer any questions on Judaism, Old Testament, New Testament fulfillment. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the promised one. Thank you, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that in the agonies of death, you would stop to say, I thirst. (laughs) Oh, to fulfill scripture. Because you know that everything must be fulfilled. You are amazing. You are amazing. And we just love you and we just are amazed at the way you loved us and gave yourself up for us. We honour you, Jesus Lord, Jesus Christ. We honour and praise you. Receive our grateful and joyful worship, I pray. And make your presence known, Lord, as we take the bread and drink the wine. Pray in your precious name. Amen.